Hi, Mary. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Dan. I can't believe it's the first week of June already. Yes, I know. I know. Time going fast, isn't it? And nearly the much anticipated summer of 2021, aren't we? Indeed, indeed. So I've started doing calls with people in the office in London. I don't know if you've got plans to go in, Dan. Yeah, our office in London opened what, a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? 17th of May. So it's obviously lower capacity. I haven't been in yet. I am planning to go in this week. It's funny. It feels like planning to go into the office is like a huge adventure and you sort of forget you used to do it every day without even thinking about it but yes I am planning to go in this week which will be the first time for, for a very long time and how about you because of course you're you're Winchester now aren't you? I am Winchester unfortunately there is no Winchester office at the moment it's still being refurbed I will head into London I think a couple of times but I wasn't really planning to move to Winchester to have a, an hour's commute so we'll see but I guess it will be interesting won't it when people are going back to the, the daily commute whether that makes our, our listenership go up or down <laughs> be quite telling I think. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting, won't it? I mean, my podcast listening has probably been lower than it would have been if I was commuting. I mean, I, I was probably getting in a good couple of hours a day when I was commuting. So uh, my listening will be back up when I do start commuting again regularly. But that'd be great to hear from people. Um, fantastic to hear from listeners. Let us know, you know, are you, are you back in the office? Are you commuting? Are you enjoying podcasts, listening to them? Um, it'd be great to hear where people are at. I know some firms have been back for a little while. Other firms are taking it more slowly. So I guess we're going to see it over the summer, aren't we? Mm, absolutely. And if you are still listening at home, some really good, exciting new functionality with the podcast, which I guess I, I'll just test now and we'll see if it makes any uh, people react. So Alexa, play Investment Uncut. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully some people will have had their Alexa spring to life. Yeah, you've got to be careful with that one if you're on a, a group call where people have got their microphone on, because I have heard that trigger a few uh, Alexas in the background. But yeah, you can now get straight to us on Alexa and Google um, smart speakers. Um, it's now all optimized and stuff, so even easier to listen to us when you're at home. Absolutely. Cool. Let's get on with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So it's been quite hard to avoid in the news recently, lots of stories about how young people, particularly millennials, are, are investing their money. So this week, we're really delighted to welcome to the show Iona Bain, founder of the Young Money blog and go-to gal when it comes to young money issues. Iona, welcome to the show. Great to be joining you. Welcome, Iona. Great to have you here. So you're an author, you're a blogger, you're a podcaster. Talk us through your role a little bit and how you see your role overall. Sure. Well, I am the founder of Young Money Blog. I established it in 2011. So this year marks the 10-year anniversary of the blog, which is Incredible. quite remarkable. I know. Yeah. I never expected it to last this long, but here we are. So I see my job really as being the voice of young people when it comes to personal finance. So in that capacity, I am a journalist. I have a regular column for the Eye newspaper and I write for other titles like the Financial Times. I also have written a book called Own It, How Our Generation Can Invest Our Way to a Better Future. And that's my second book. And I have a podcast called the Own It Podcast. And I'm also a speaker and I have an agency now where I do lots of different types of corporate work. And my dad works with me in that agency because he is a retired business and finance journalist. So he's got a lot of experience to bring to that role. So yeah, I keep busy. <laughs> 
You do indeed. And I absolutely love that you do some of it with your dad. I think that's so brilliant and a lovely mark of the relationship you must have with him. Yeah, we, we get on well, which is a good job. <laughs> yes, excellent. Excellent. Iona, we're really keen to explore all of the all of the areas that you've just mentioned, actually. But before we do, can you tell us one thing that we should know about you that won't appear on your CV? Well, anybody that knows a little bit about me will already know that I'm a trained musician. But what they might not realise is that I have perfect pitch which basically means I can identify notes instantly and I can even identify what the pitch of a toilet flushing is and what the pitch <laughs> of, a, of a siren is. I mean, it's a very bizarre talent, but nonetheless, it was obviously very, very helpful to me when I was a musician. Mm. And do you test that often then, the pitch of toilet flushes? I do, yeah. And people will ask me and it's like my little party trick that I can do. It's gone a little bit rusty in recent times, which slightly worried me because, you know, you just assume you'll keep these talents and skills forever. But of course, I'm not as active a musician as I used to be. So, you know, I do need to keep my hand in. I do need to keep practicing identifying pitches from time to time. Right. And does it work just as well over Zoom or is that a bit of a tricky one? I reckon I could do it over Zoom. Are you going to test me now? <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't planning on testing you now. <laughs> putting me on the spot. <laughs> it's funny actually quite a few of our guests have had musical hobbies and stuff and obviously had lots of interesting comments about how that hasn't hasn't worked over the last year or so. I guess it has been difficult for a lot of musical groups, made it a bit harder, but I guess we're coming to a better place for that hopefully now these days. Yeah, yeah, my um, orchestra that I play in has just started rehearsing again, which is fantastic. So it's it's all starting to kick back into action, which is lovely to see. Cool. Okay, Iona. Well, I mean, maybe a great place to start would be to talk us through what got you into the Young Money blog in the first time. You said that was back in 2011. So I guess even sort of finance blogging wasn't that big. Even blogging wasn't that big back then in, in many ways. No, it definitely wasn't. I think there's this perception that blogging and vlogging have been around for a lot longer than they actually have been. And when I started, financial blogs weren't a thing. I think the most notable influencer, even though that wasn't a term back in 2011. Most notable influencer in that space was Martin Lewis, obviously has done an, a really pioneering, important job with regards to spreading that financial awareness. But when I started, it was really just a way for me to learn about money and to share what I was learning with other young people, because there just wasn't that coverage about financial issues that was aimed at my generation. And I just thought that was remiss because this was just a couple of years after the financial crash. We were having austerity and recessions. Young people were really struggling to find work, to become financially independent, to move out and live independently. And I was having those struggles too. Uh, so when my musical career stalled, I felt like it was a good time to change tack and to try something different. And I thought, well, why not start a blog? And it was suggested to me actually by my dad. And at first I thought it was a bonkers idea because I just thought, well, I don't know anything about money, so who will listen to me? But I guess the point is that you can learn. And if you're really committed to learning, then the information is all out there. And what matters is that willingness to learn. And that's certainly what I had. So yeah, I started doing it. And then as the years went on, I worked in the financial media, had lots and lots of different jobs, which was really good for building up my experience and knowledge. But it was uh, in 2016 when I decided, actually, Young Money Blog has huge potential. People are crying out for someone to discuss these issues in an articulate and relatable way. And maybe I need to step up to the plate and provide that service. And so that's what I decided to do. And I'm really happy that I made that decision. That's fantastic. And do you ever or do you frequently read back some of the very early blogs that you wrote and, and reflect on, I guess, the journey you've been on yourself? 
I do, yes. And it's really interesting to see how much I have developed and moved on in my thinking. And there are early blogs where I think I was so naive. And (laughs) I know that sounds quite (laughs) harsh, because in a way, you know, I was in my early 20s. And of course, I was naive. I suppose you could say I was idealistic. And uh, I was still learning. I like seeing the kind of evolution of my writing and my thinking over time. But I also like seeing how when I say brave, that maybe is not quite the right word. But but how kind of unselfconscious I was when I was writing my early blogs. And I've always tried to hold on to that because I think as time goes on, you can start to conform and fit in with other people's ideas of, of what a blog should look like and, and how you ought to write. Um, but the minute you start doing that is the minute you lose all your originality and what made you unique to start with. So yeah, I do like to go back and, and remind myself of that original spirit that I started the blog in and how that's something I need to hold on to. And I think that's something that people and indeed investors don't probably do often enough is actually to reflect on the journey that they've been through. So whether it's a group of pension scheme trustees, whether it's an individual person actually looking back and actually giving yourself a pat on the back if you've done quite a good job, whether it's evolving the way you write, whether it's evolving the way you invest, good decisions that you've made. I completely agree. And and it's a fascinating point you make about conformity. I mean, I think there's so much of that in the investment industry, sadly. And so people who are able, like you, to write sort of without the constraints of that, it just stands out so much because it's so rare, sadly. But it's easier said than done. And I suppose in my context, I could always write what I wanted because I was completely independent. Whereas if you're in a corporate framework, it's difficult. We talk a lot about cognitive diversity and how much that matters. But actually, you also need to know that if you're going to speak out or if you're going to advocate a different approach, that you're going to be supported by the people around you and that it's a safe space, if you like. And it's difficult to do that if you feel like people aren't really practicing what they preach and they might talk the talk, but they don't necessarily walk the walk. When it comes to that cognitive diversity, people do actually have to put their money where their mouth is and stand up for people when they put forward an unpopular or unconventional position. I mean, that's a a decade then that you've been doing that, which is an awfully long time. I think you said you started that in your early 20s. So you've presumably gone through your entire 20s sort of writing that blog. What would you pick out as some of the highlights from that decade of looking back? A lot has happened over the past decade. And I was fortunate in that I also had the opportunity, as I said before, to work in different roles in the financial media as I developed the blog. I wasn't reliant on it in the early years and I had it purely as a hobby and I did it in my spare time, which was sometimes quite challenging when I was working a full-time job. And the last thing I felt like doing when I came home from a day's worth of writing and interviewing was to do more writing and more interviewing. But nonetheless, I'm really glad that I kept it going through that time. I think some of the highlights for me were I worked on a trade newspaper called Financial Advisor in 2014. Sadly, it's no more, but it was a great training ground for me as a financial journalist and helped me build up so much of the knowledge and experience that I think has given Young Money Blog that extra credibility. And I worked on a financial advisor during RDR, which for all the finance geeks out there is retail distribution review. It was basically the biggest shakeup that has ever happened in the world of financial advice. And I was there at that time reporting on it. So that was really interesting. And then a couple of years later, I was fortunate enough to work on The Times in 2016 during the Brexit referendum. So going to the newsroom on the day after the referendum was pretty electric. And I remember going up to the uh, canteen at the top of News UK building and seeing Rupert Murdoch there and being really surprised and thinking, oh my goodness. Wow. So that was quite a moment. It's a time in history that I'll always remember. I was really fortunate to win Freelancer of the Year 
an award that was given out by IPSI, the Association for Independent Professionals and Self-Employed. It's basically the UK's leading association for the self-employed. That was wonderful recognition and it gave me not only some much needed funding, but also opened a few doors for me back in 2018. So that was a huge highlight. And then uh, the most recent one was appearing on Question Time last year, which was pretty terrifying. And when I got the call and, and got asked to do it, I thought to myself, how am I going to sleep for the next two days? Because you get two days notice before you do it. Really? Only that much time? Only that much time. And I very naively thought you might get a sense of what the questions would be in advance. But no, it's a complete surprise on the night. People will ask what they want to ask and you've just got to go with it. I did do a lot of prep with my dad because I was staying with my parents at that time. It was in lockdown and he kind of coached me, if you like, because uh, I thought to myself, well, all these other politicians that go on there, you know, they have teams coaching them, making sure they're well prepared. I better make sure that I don't just go in there and don't have anything in my head whatsoever. I think that would have been crazy. It was a great experience and I really enjoyed it in the end. I'm glad that I didn't have to do it in the studio though with an audience because I think that would have felt a little bit like going into the Colosseum during Roman times but yeah that was a real highlight. Fantastic and I yeah, I suppose I hadn't appreciated that doing it during lockdown actually you'd have had your dad prepping you and then you'd have walked into a room in the same building as your dad. <laughs> yes exactly they were basically in the next room and I was in my parents living room and there's a two-hour delay as well so you do the recording and then it's shown on BBC One, you know, a couple of hours after. So it's not live, but it's good as live. Uh, so it's a bit like extreme sports, you know, other people go jumping out of planes. I go on question time. <laughs> <laughs> and just quickly, what was the premise of that? Was it responding to the budget or something? And, and who were the politicians that were on there with you? It was an under 30s question time special and it was summer last year. So there were lots of questions about how young people would recover economically from the pandemic. So you had Stephen Barclay, who's treasury, who's at the treasury and Theo Pathetis as well was on there. I talked over Theo at one point, but it was because I couldn't actually hear him in the studio. But everybody just thought I was being really sassy. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. You talked just then about, I guess, young people's reaction to the pandemic. And I know you've done some research much more recently. So perhaps could you just give us an overview of what you've sort of learned from that research? Yes. So I think we're well aware that younger people are the group that are most likely to suffer the economic fallout from the pandemic. I think the only other group, interestingly, that's on a par with Gen Z is those who are aged 50 to 55, roughly, and those who are approaching retirement, those workers are also very vulnerable. And I think that's important to bring out because as somebody who writes the Young Money blog, you don't want to get into the habit of believing that young people are uniquely vulnerable and that there aren't other segments of the population and other demographics that don't have their struggles too. And I think the last year has been really tough for those who are approaching retirement because if they fall out of the jobs market, you know, arguably it's t even tougher for them to get back into it and to find new roles. Whereas young people, they do have their lives ahead of them. You know, life is a long game. But I think overall, it would be hard to dispute the figures showing the numbers of 18 to 25 year olds who have lost work, lost income, had to dip into their savings, had to take on debt, who've ended up financially worse off. And so I think, therefore, this poses a huge question for us as we come out of this lockdown. How are we going to 
redress the balance? How are we going to make sure that that generation isn't economically and psychologically scarred by this period? Because economists will testify to just how deep and long term the damage can be when a young person leaves education during a crisis. And if there aren't opportunities then for them to earn and learn after that, then they can spend several years out of work really that has a lifelong impact on their job prospects and their finances. And we can obviously also imagine the impact that has on their saving and their pension and their investments. That's undeniable. But it's also been interesting to see a lot of differences in marriage between Gen Z and millennials as well. So I think Gen Z, who are roughly speaking aged 16 to 25, whereas millennials are more 25 to late 30s, 40, possibly, by some definitions. Dan, that gets you just into the millennial bracket. I'm smiling, yeah. I, I turned 40 this year, as listeners know, so yeah. That makes you a geriatric millennial. Have you heard this? I know, I know. I read that last week, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. I haven't come across that. So Gen Z is, I think, more entrepreneurial generation than millennials. You can see that they have been much quicker to adopt side hustles, they're on apps like Depop. I've got an account on Depop selling clothes. And it's amazing to see just all these people who are younger than me earning really good money by selling gear online. It's quite inspiring in a way to see how much get up and go they have. But I think it's partly because they've come of age in after the financial crash and they really don't feel like they can rely on anybody. They've got to really go out there and hustle. They're more enthusiastic savers and investors than millennials ever were. And they're more adventurous investors. And I think we've seen over the past year with the rise of crypto and the noise around shares like Tesla, a lot of that's been driven by younger people who are bored and who have been deprived of the opportunity to gamble on sports fixtures and have redirected that money into the stock market instead, which is in in one way worrying. But in another way, I suppose if, if that is getting them into investing, then hopefully the investment industry can figure out a way to hold on to those young people. And hopefully they're not going to end up being too hurt by any fallout from this crazy period. And when the bubble does burst, that that isn't going to put them off investing for life. Hopefully we can find a way to hold on to those younger people. And it's a really interesting comparison you made there in terms of potentially some of this money that's gone into the stock market usually being used for sports betting. I'm not someone who particularly does sports betting, but you sort of think of that as as you're using relatively disposable income to do those sorts of activities. And I suppose if you're thinking about it in a similar way with crypto and Tesla, then fine and maybe that starts you getting into good habits. But given volatility, particularly that we've seen in in the last few months, I guess you need to make sure that it is actually disposable income that you're betting, if you like. Yeah, it's true, because I think a lot of this is being driven by trends in the US, as so much of our stock market behaviour is driven by the US. And over there, you've got stimulus checks being sent to people in the post, and they are seeing that as monopoly money almost. It's not money they've saved and earned of their own accord, it's being given to them freely by the government. So they're they're quite happy to take a pump with it. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the ultra risky behavior that we've seen. And, And that is somewhat influencing younger people here in the UK. Although I do think that younger people here are being more thoughtful and more cautious. The kind of anecdotal and empirical evidence that I've been seeing suggests that actually younger people aren't quite as gung ho as their US counterparts are. Okay. 
That's interesting. Super interesting, the distinction you drew between Gen Z and millennials. And, and I'm really keen to explore that a little bit, maybe, because I guess from the perspective of large parts of the finance industry, which is often run by people of a different generation to those two entirely, that might be the naive sort of perspective that young people are sort of one homogeneous kind of group. But I guess what you're saying is you're seeing quite different habits. And you, did you say Gen Z are more enthusiastic savers than millennials? That's the research that I'm seeing. That's what it's telling me. You're right to say that we should be incredibly careful about generalizations. I mean, obviously, writing the Young Money blog has taught me to quote Alexander Dumas, all generalizations are useless, even this one. So (laughs) you do need to be careful. But at the same time, you can observe trends. And there's nothing wrong with pointing out those distinct trends and discussing what they might mean and, and what's causing those trends. I think Gen Z have become more enthusiastic savers investors, partly because they've seen millennials really being caught out a lot by not just the financial crash, but now COVID as well. Because I think a lot of millennials have also ended up in a very difficult position over the past year. Uh, I don't think they've been as acutely affected as Gen Z, but nonetheless, there's still a, a worrying degree of redundancies and debt among millennials still. And partly that's because I know a lot of younger people who adopted a very nihilistic attitude towards their finances after the financial crash. They just thought, well, what's the point? Uh, Debt's inevitable. There's no way I'm ever going to get on the housing ladder. I may as well enjoy myself. And a lot of that was fanned up, not just by commercial influences, but by the media, because the media would convey a very hopeless, bleak picture of the housing market of savings, of investing, of the opportunities that were there. And I'm not saying that we should ever paint a rosy one-sided picture of any of these things. You know, we need to be we need to be honest with younger people about the problems that we have, especially with our housing market, which is really dysfunctional. But nonetheless, I think that that engendered an attitude among millennials that there's no point in saving. And then we've seen with the past year that obviously if you don't save then you are putting yourself in an incredibly vulnerable position because none of us know what will happen. Nobody could have predicted, I think, that we would not be allowed to leave the house essentially for months on end, except for essential reasons. So that's why you save money. And I think Jen said had looked at millennials and realized, yeah, we don't want to be caught out. If anything like this ever happens again to us, we'll be ready. So in the context of, I guess, young people, particularly Gen Z saving more. So I've anecdotally heard, and this is probably more focused on the US, about the sort of Gen Z 60-40 portfolio, which is either 40 or 60% of crypto and then the other half being Tesla, which I thought was quite interesting, but obviously that is slightly more gung-ho. What sort of trends have you seen in terms of what young people actually do with their money over the sort of decade you've been looking at this very closely? And in terms of, so I've got a bit of money and I am willing to save it, have saving trends changed as well? Yeah, I do think that saving and investing trends have changed quite dramatically over the past decade. Bitcoin was only established in 2009, so it is incredibly new. And so it was barely known when I first started blogging about it. And it only really came onto the radar for younger people in the last few years. So I've only started seeing this move towards crypto since 2016 at the earliest, I would say. And then Prior to that, I think that, yeah, there was a much more traditional approach to finance. And and that's partly because as well, fintech wasn't particularly evolved at that point when I first started blogging. So there was only one banking app on the market 
and that was RBS's banking app. Monzo, Starling, Revolut, none of them were around in 2011. When we did online banking, it was on our desktops. And even then, it still felt like quite a big novelty. So a lot of our financial transactions were still taking place in real life, if you like. And that's changed a lot over the past 10 years. And I don't want to overstate the influence and importance of challenger banks like Monzo and Starling. Make no mistake, they are still a, a kind of niche part of the market. There's only a minority of younger people who use them. And those that tend to be quite affluent, concentrated in certain sectors, very tech savvy. You know, I think there's a debate to be had about how inclusive that technology is. But nonetheless, I do think it is having a kind of an outsized influence on 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 the industry as a whole because I think it has forced a lot of traditional financial players to up their game. So all high street banks now have to offer really good budgeting apps just to keep up with those challenges. And then investing platforms have really democratized the world of investing. It's not just been the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne and so on who have opened up the stock market to ordinary investors. We have also seen the rise of free trading apps and fractional trading and social trading and these kinds of trends that have explicitly appealed to younger people. They have very millennial-friendly brands. They use celebrities like Alec Baldwin in their marketing campaigns. They have a very down-to-earth tone and language. And they talk about investing in brands you love, which on the one hand makes sense if you understand a company and if you feel like you have a good handle on it, then of course it makes sense for you to invest in it. But I'm slightly worried that we're now moving to a place where just because you have an Apple iPhone, that means you get everything about the company and that you totally understand how that works as an investment and therefore you buy its shares. And that's not the right approach. So yeah, there's a lot to be very positive about in terms of the evolution of fintech over the past 10 years. But there's things to be worried about too, because when you make investing easy, there's a danger that you make it too easy and you remove those essential safeguards and you allow people to jump in without doing their homework and having that that they really need. And you can't, you know, you can't have that expertise right from the word go. You do have to learn, you know, and in a way, young people kind of getting out there and investing, just doing it, you know, how else are you going to find out these things? But you've got to really learn from the mistakes that you make as well. And you've got to commit to getting on the learning curve fast. I was really keen to ask you, what are some of the things you think that young people get wrong when thinking about money? And I'm conscious that maybe that is a little bit the wrong question because I noticed you've written a blog sort of pushing back on the classic sort of framing of younger people as making all these silly mistakes sort of thing. And and that's not always a helpful way of looking at it. But what would you say are some of the things that get wrong? If we're talking about the current moment, certainly young people are viewing investing as just a fancy form of gambling or speculating. And that's totally wrong. Investing is about making smart calculated decisions and informed guesses about what will happen in the future. Because whilst investing is uncertain, you can do that level of research and due diligence that will help you understand how a company works, how it's interacting with the broader economic environment and what its prospects are. And then you can decide whether that looks like a promising investment over the long term. And that's the other thing that younger people get wrong. They want instant results. They want to see the value of their portfolio rise by a spectacular amount in a month, partly because they've seen an influencer who's told them that that's what to expect and that that's been their own experience. And unfortunately, because it is a wild west out there, anyone can set themselves up as an influencer now and can offer investment advice that's totally unregulated there isn't anything to stop a young person taking that advice at face value and making some really reckless 
excessively risky decisions that they could end up regretting. So yeah, that failure to see the stock market as a get richer slowly process as opposed to a get rich quick scheme. That's something that, that I think young people are getting wrong at the moment. And we just need many more influences out there helping young people understand that they can't expect those results overnight. You know, it's it's a marathon, not a race. You've probably been slightly getting at the answer to my next question already in, in that previous answer. But I guess just thinking forward, perhaps for the next decade, and I guess the, the people that are currently young people will obviously be growing up during that time. What do you think is the biggest threat to their finances in that period? I think the biggest threat is a major stock market correction and inflation as well, because right now I think we're seeing really huge bubbles emerging in particularly in the US stock market. And I think the crypto craze is symptomatic of that bubble. And I think a lot of people are going to get hurt at some point. We just don't know when. I wouldn't want to put a date on it, but I'll be gobsmacked if in another five years time, if we were to you know record a follow-up to this podcast then if a real stock market event hadn't happened by that point and a lot of people hadn't had a really sobering wake-up call about the dangers of piling into assets that seem to be a one-way bet so I think that's the biggest threat and that will you know scar a lot of young people who have had yeah have had a rude awakening as a result of that but will maybe also learn some really much needed lessons from that correction and will hopefully then understand what it takes to be a patient, thoughtful investor over the long term. That's a difficulty, isn't it? Because you sort of referred to the millennial experience post the 2008 crash was almost a kind of nihilism or kind of like, well, what's the point sort of attitude? And I guess it's a fine line, isn't it, between learning your lesson and being, okay, now I know how to do it and being actually, you know what, forget about this, this this pointless kind of thing. So tough. Yeah. And you've got to get out there and do it for yourself. And in my book, I share my investing diary from 2020, because I wanted to convey that I am not just discussing all these things in the abstract and passing on these lessons that are easier said than done. I have found out a lot of these things for myself, very often the hard way. I made mistakes in 2020. I got caught up in a few frenzies here and there. And it's partly because I had one of these apps that make it incredibly easy to start investing. And I became addicted and my family had to stage an intervention because I was checking this investing app every day. It was really enlightening when I joined that app and recognized why so many younger people have become quite addicted to trading in and out of the stock market and have become very drawn to investing as a kind of alternative to gambling. Because if you don't have that first-hand experience, you can't talk about it in a relatable way. And I think this is where the investment industry goes wrong. They end up preaching from an ivory tower to young people and and they've never had that experience of what it's like to want to make money because you you have felt so frustrated by low savings rates and you've never really had assets of your own and you're really desperate to just make some money. And also older people can forget what it's like to be young. You can forget what it's like to have that incredibly adventurous buccaneering outlook on life. I'm not saying that you can't have that as you get older. And I and and you know, my parents, for instance, are are incredibly outward looking and, and adventurous and risk-taking in many ways. But yeah, you can't put an old head on young shoulders. And and I hope that with my work what I try to do is I try to be that relatable friend for younger people and say, look, this stuff is hard. I know it's hard. I make mistakes. I want to learn from them and I want to share with you what I'm learning. And I'm not going to just tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. 
So Iona, it's been such a fascinating conversation. We could probably keep going for hours, but I think we're, we're pretty much out of time. So as we wrap up, what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from this episode? The one thing I'd like people to take away from this is that mistakes are inevitable. And we think that people who are in the public eye talking about personal finance, like me, that we're perfect when it comes to our finances. I'm still making mistakes with my money all the time. And I like to think I'm honest about that. What matters is that we learn from those mistakes and that we just committed to engaging with our finances and keeping an open mind about what's out there and not being too fixed and black and white in our thinking about these things as well, because it's it's complex, but it's also really fascinating and rewarding. And, and that's what I'd love people to take away from this. And Iona, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Ooh, I think what's underappreciated about it is that it has genuinely never been easier to start investing. And whilst I've talked about the dangers of that, at the same time, often the biggest problem that, that the financial industry has is getting people to overcome their apathy. Uh, and therefore, you have to remove as many of the barriers as you possibly can without removing too many of them. And I think we we will hopefully get to that sweet spot where younger people can open an account with £50 or £100 to invest each month, which is totally doable. That's like the cost of a big night out for a lot of younger people. If they can put that money into the stock market instead and do that from a really young age, then they will be gobsmacked 10, 20 and 30 years down the line how much that money has grown for them over the long term, as long as they are taking basic sensible precautions. Fantastic. What a great note to end on. And Iona, we're really keen to hear any recommendations you've got for the listeners. We'll obviously include a link to your book and your podcast. Do you have any other recommendations for listeners? Well, apart from my book and my podcast, <laughs> there are too many books for me to try and pick out one to recommend. So I'll talk about podcasts instead, which I really love. I've been listening to the Money Week podcast recently with Meryn Somerset Webb. Big, big fan of hers and a big fan of the magazine overall. And she does really interesting interviews with so many different people from the world of investing. But a non-financial podcast I've really been enjoying is the BBC History Extra podcast. For some reason, I've been really getting into history podcasts lately, and it's helped me plug a lot of gaps in my historical knowledge. They do interviews with lots of different historians about all sorts of topics from medieval history to Second World War history. Yeah, I know that makes me sound like I'm very intellectual. I kind of go in and out of different phases with podcasts, and I'm just in a real history phase at the moment for some reason. Fantastic. Well, I tend to get my historical knowledge from period dramas, which doesn't always end up being <laughs> accurate. So I think you're Yours is a better recommendation. The likes of Bridgerton, huh? Yeah. Indeed, yeah. yeah. And the crown. <laughs> yeah. Iona, it's been a fantastic conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks, Iona. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. If you like what you hear, please do leave us a review and tune in again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.